1989, an earthquake hit Armenia, uh, and in only four minutes, flattened the nation and killed 30,000 people. Moments after the, the tremor ended, there is a, a story about a father who I can only imagine in a terrifying moment ran to his son's elementary school, which is where his son was when the earthquake hit, looking for his son. And when he arrived, the building had been completely leveled. And looking at the mass of stone and rubble, he remembered this promise that he had made to his child the night before when they had prayed together at home. He said, no matter what happens, I'll always be there for you, son. He said to the, this little elementary school boy. And so as he's remembering those words in, in complete and sheer panic and, and emotion, as I can only imagine, driven by his own promise, he, he goes to the area of the classroom, uh, of the building where he, his classroom was, and he begins to just pull back the rocks. And in moments, you know, other parents are coming and they're sobbing for their children and, and they're crying. It's too late. They, they said to the man, even, uh, they're dead. You can't help there's no one that could possibly survive this rubble of a building. Even the police encouraged him to just give up, but the father refused. It, with that promise in his mind that he had made to his young son the night before, he began to dig, and he digged for eight hours, and then for 16, and then for 32, and then for 36 hours straight. He dug, and he dug, and he dug as as much as he could just to get to the bottom of that rubble. And his hands were raw and his energy was gone, but he refused to quit. And finally, after 38 hours, he pulled back the boulder after boulder and he heard the faint noise of his son's voice. And that, his son said, Dad, it's me, it's me, it's me. And, and he called the medics over, and it took a while for them to get there because they had given up on that particular moment. And, and the medics came, and, and he rescued his son, and the son survived. He had many, many injuries, but the son survived. But, but the, the man wrote in this article that the boy told him later, I told the other kids, don't worry, because my dad said that he will come after me no matter what. So we're going to be okay. And he was the only survivor out of that building. But some people would say that the hope that he had, that his dad was coming, was the very thing that kept him alive for all of those hours that he was under that rubble. That's exciting. <laughs> so we're finishing this series today. We're finishing the series called Coming King. We made a study guide for you. It has glossary of terms and personal reading plan and suggested reading for deeper study and all that stuff. And, and we looked at a lot of things. We, we've covered a lot of theological ground this month. We've talked about why we study the end times, why it's important. We've talked about the signs of the times. Last week, we focused on the great tribulation and the rapture. Uh, we wrote on a whiteboard if you were here. And in fact, I saw they used that whiteboard in kids' church this morning, and I thought, well, that'll be an interesting lesson. <laughs> I think they're going to erase it and do something else on it. But, but I pushed the, the Great Tribulation. You know, they use that whiteboard over there. And today, we're going to finish our series talking about the second coming. And, and our hope, really, for this series was not that you would learn everything there is to know because there's no way to cover it in four short weeks. But our hope was that you would get 
uh, involved, that you would get enthralled. Maybe even that you would begin to think about it and talk about it with people in your life and, and, and read that scripture and try to understand for yourself, try to study for yourself what God is saying. And uh, Ron Troyer and I are going to do a podcast. If you still have questions or uh, if you, as you're reading you have questions, you can send them to question at eriefirst.org. And we're going to do a podcast this week to try to answer some of your questions. We've already gotten several that are really good. And so thanks for sending those in. But I wanted to end the series today by talking about how God made us a promise. God made us a promise, and he assures us he is coming back again. In John 14, 3, it says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you may also be where I am. And so when I read that story that I just shared about the earthquake in Armenia, the rocks tumbled and the ground shook and the future looked bleak, but that child of that father did not fear. And it just impressed on me so much this morning that our father has promised to come back for us. Our father has promised no matter what, and we have a father that cannot and will not ever break a promise. He's never broken one before, and he's not going to start now. And so he will always be there for us, and he will take us to be with him. And that's what I want you to, to feel today, the weight of perhaps you feel like you're in a rubble, that your life is a little bit of a mess, and you don't know if anyone's coming for you, but Jesus says that I am coming back, and I will take you with me to where I'm going. And that's a promise that we can stand on. So we've learned um, that there'll be signs of Christ's second coming. We learned that there'll be sign events and sign trends and, and cosmic signs. We learned that, that when that all happens, and we have questions about some of that, and, and we don't understand all of the, the um, things that the scripture says exactly. Well, what does that mean? Will the, will the moon actually turn red, or is that metaphoric? You know, you know, we don't know all of those things exactly. We can study those. But we do know that the Antichrist will come, and declare peace, and make many covenants with nations, and he will seem like he is doing great things, and many will follow him, but that will be the start of the tribulation. And we talked about how last week we are in the signs, events, and the sign trends. We see those things very clearly. But that moment, the Antichrist has not been revealed yet. So we know that we are at least seven years away from Christ's coming, because the scripture says that the first thing that will happen is the Antichrist will be made known. And he will be, look like a good guy, a guy who makes peace, a guy who makes covenants with people. And then three and a half years into that tribulation, the Antichrist will, will switch, he'll turn. After he has gained all of um, the, the uh, allegiances from people and all of the, the covenants, and after he's gained all this trust and all this influence in people's lives, he will turn three and a half years in, and uh, the world will see terrible, unprecedented evil come upon the earth. The scripture actually says it will be the hardest time in human history. I, I feel like we often say, man, the world is bad right now. It, it is bad. And it is at times. But the scripture says that what is coming is much worse. It will be the most terrible time. In fact, it says if, if the, the Lord wouldn't cut those days short... No one would survive. 
because of how terrible it will be. And the scripture says that at that moment when the Antichrist demands to be worshipped, the scripture will call that the abomination of desolation. But after seven years, so three and a half of peace, the Antichrist is claiming peace, three and a half of the Antichrist turning and demanding to be worshipped, there will come a day. And no one knows what particular day that is. No one knows the date of this day. Now, people will, will uh, speculate, they'll talk about it, you might have heard theories, but listen, no one knows the date of this day. Nobody. Nobody knows it. But what we do know is some things about the day, and we know it will be a day like none of us have ever experienced before. I want to take us to Zechariah 14, 6, verse 6. It says, on that day, this is the day of Christ's return, there will be neither sunlight nor cold, frosty darkness. It will be a unique day, a day known only to the Lord with no distinction between day and night. When evening comes, there will be light. So it's saying there won't be, it won't be day, it won't be night. It'll be something completely different, something beyond our, our mind's comprehension. It will not be like any other day that we've experienced here on earth. We do know that Jesus will come in the clouds because this is how he left. Acts 1, 9 through 11 tells us that after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and the cl cloud hid them from sight. And they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood before them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. And so we have that clue that he will not come from the earth. He will not come from some other place. He will come from the sky. He went into the clouds. He's going to come from the clouds. We know on that day, Revelation 1-9 says, every eye will see him coming in the clouds. How's that going to work? I don't know. But every eye is going to see him. It will be so cataclysmic. It will be so phenomenal. It'll be so outside of our understanding that at, at the same moment, every eye will see him coming in the clouds. And I, I sort of asked the Lord this week, I said, why is that a thing? Do you ever do that with God? You read it and you say, what does that mean? Why is that a thing? And I, and I felt like what he is showing here at this moment is he has come for us all. That, that there is no, uh, well, uh, I like him a little bit better. He prayed a little bit more. He can see me first. <laughs> he has come for us all. He is the savior of the world. And because he offers salvation to everyone that will take it, every eye will see him coming in the clouds. And in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, the scripture describes the Lord himself will come down from heaven. It won't be an angel. It won't be somebody like him. It will be the Lord himself. And it will be a loud command with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. And we will be interrupted from whatever we're doing in that moment if we're still on earth. And all I will look to see that something amazing, something miraculous is happening. And apart from the day that Jesus eliminated all death on the cross, I believe that this will be the best moment in all of history. The king will come, and he will reign forever and ever, and he will govern the earth, and he will be victorious finally, once and for all, and he, he will be the coming king. And he promises that will happen. 
It's interesting, John, he, he attempts to sort of describe Revelation, um, but he says a lot in those scriptures, it was like, dot, dot, dot. It was like, dot, dot, dot. And, and he says that because there's nothing on earth that he can describe it like. He says it was kind of looks like this. It was kind of was like this. He struggles for the words because Jesus is indescribable. Our human minds cannot contain, cannot understand the bigness and the gloriousness of God. And I'm so thankful that he's bigger than what we can imagine. I'm so thankful that his promises are bigger than what we can comprehend. Because he is, he is God. He is so much bigger and larger and in charge than anything that we can ever imagine. So I want to kind of focus in, in what Jesus will look like that day. The scripture talks a lot about it, and it says a lot to us about who he is. Um, let's start in Revelation 19, 11 through 16. It talks in detail about this. It says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judged and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire. His eyes are like blazing fire. When you look at his eyes, they, they are bright. They are like, um, like purging the bacteria of sin, purifying the soul. Can you imagine the eyes of someone that has never, ever sinned? Passionate, pure, blazing fire is all John could think of to explain that. He goes on to say his head, he'll have many crowns. What does that mean? Well, crowns, they signify authority. Every kingdom in the world has become his. He is the rightful king, the only king, and the king of kings. No one else needs a crown. No one else has a crown. There is no one above him. All of the crowns are on his head. Next it says he has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. What does that mean? You might, you might email me and Ron the question, what, what do you think that name is? And as your pastor, I know this one. You know what I'm going to tell you? Well, no one knows it but himself. I don't know. You don't know either. Nobody knows it. But what I think that means is he is so great and so awesome and so majestic and so glorious and so powerful that we have only begun to understand the smallest iceberg of his majesty and his splendor. And so there is so much about God that we don't know. That's what that means. There's so much about his name that we can't even understand because we're these little people that are completely, you know, inside this flesh and we're trying to figure out this world. And God said, I'm so outside of all of those things. You can't even understand all that I am. Verse 13, he's dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. Dipped in blood, that means he's been fighting. He's been fighting for us. He's been fighting for us, and his bloodshed is our salvation. And he says that I will do everything it takes so that all of humanity can have a straight and clear path to me because I love them so much because I created them. Verse 14, the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. The scripture says he is the God of angel armies, that he commands them and they obey him. And they're riding on horses. Verse 15. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God Almighty. 
What does this mean? Well, that sword, that sword is his word. So will he actually have a sharp sword coming out of his mouth? We don't know for sure, but John is just trying to describe it. He's trying to show you it was like this sharp sword coming out of his mouth, and the sword of his word executes judgment. It strikes down the nations. It rules them with an iron scepter. He is coming to judge the earth. He is the judge, and he can't be God if he doesn't judge sin. He can't be just if he doesn't judge sin, but he also is a God of love and he doesn't want anyone to perish. So in a heart of love, he repeats his word over and over again, and he does everything he can to bring people into repentance. And then the scripture ends there with, it says, on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In another part of Revelation chapter 1, 12 through 16, it adds to this description when he returns. It repeats some of these same concepts, but it adds a couple things. It says Jesus has a long robe with a gold band around his chest, and this is the clothing of a priest. The people then knew that priests were people who would uh, introduce people to God. They were the ones who would usher people into the presence of God and God do his people. And and Revelation 1 says he is the perfect priest. He is the one who connects us to God perfectly. It describes him in verse 15 as he has feet like bronze glowing in a furnace. I looked up what bronze is. It's a combination of iron and copper. Iron is strong, but it rusts. Copper is won't rust, but copper is too pliable. And so you combine the two, and bronze is the best quality of both preserved. It's the strength of the iron and the endurance of the copper. And I believe that what this is communicating is that the rule of Christ is set on this strong foundation of of this power, tested by fire, that it is pliable, but it will never rust. That he he is our ultimate strength. Revelation 1.16 goes on to say, In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. We see that again. And his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. Now, his right hand is something that we want to take a look at to make sure that we notice. Because the right hand is a picture of readiness. He's not against Southpaws, left-handers. But what he says is, in your right hand, that's this picture of readiness. In fact, all through the scripture we see this. In the Old Testament, Joseph was blessed by Jacob's right hand. The Red Sea was divided by God when, when uh, Moses said, when God told Moses, stretch out your right hand. There are very specific references to the right hand. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. And so the angels of the church, the seven stars are the angels of the church. They are in his right hand. They're ready. They're ready to protect his people. They're ready to go do whatever God commands them to do. Also in this verse, it talks about how his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And Jesus' face is like, 10,000 suns shining in brilliance. The goal of John telling us in Revelation about this vision, remember, Revelation is meant to communicate 
It's the revelation of Jesus. It's revealing who Jesus is. That was the whole point of the book of Revelation. And so I believe that the goal of John is not simply just to tell us, okay, this is what he's going to look like when he comes back. So, you know, when you see somebody breaking the sky open and coming down, make sure he's got bronze feet. You know, I don't think that's the point. Like, it wasn't a checklist. What he's saying is this. What Jesus is going to look like is a reminder of who Jesus is. Everything about him is purposeful. Uh, uh, another thing I didn't talk about was they said his hair was like wool. It's like white because he's pure. He, he's bringing this holiness. And, and the goal is to say that the person of Jesus that is coming back to us, he is the perfect priest. He is the source of strength. He is the righteous judge. He is the sound of love. He is the everlasting light. He is the king of kings forever and ever and ever. And that's what he's describing in Revelation. He's saying, look at all these examples. This is what he is. He's got hair and feet and sash. And, but here's what I'm trying to explain to you in the scripture. This is all of who he is and he comes in all of his fullness. In Mark 13 it tells us that when he comes at the time, people will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. So we're going to see him with great power and glory. And then in that moment, he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now on the day of the second coming of Jesus Christ, it will be very clear who is Team Jesus. The scripture tells us in Revelation 20 that the enemy, in that moment, Jesus will, will, will gather all of his saints. He'll gather all of the people that from the four winds, from the ends of the earth. And in that moment, the enemy will be locked up for a thousand years. And he will not be allowed to deceive the nations anymore. And this is called the millennial reign of Christ. So if you've heard of that term before. And in Revelation 24, it describes that those who did not take the mark of the beast, those that stayed faithful, those that said, I'm staying strong, I'm staying faithful, I believe Jesus is Lord, no matter what you do to me, no matter what happens to me, those that were martyred on Christ's behalf will reign with Christ in this thousand-year period, and they will be priests of God. And can you imagine for a moment a world without the enemy? Can you imagine for a moment ruling and reigning with Jesus Christ for a thousand years in a world where there is no darkness, no sin, no frustration, no fear? That is what he says is coming. But then, God doesn't keep the ending a secret. Spoiler alert. He tells us what's going to happen, and he wants us to see the big picture. I believe that from the very beginning of time, God wrote the word down, and he said, we are including this idea of what's going to happen at the end of, of the age, at the end of, the, of, the, of evil, because I want my people to know in every generation that lives that evil is not as mighty as we feel or as strong as they think. Because there is an end to it, and the end is planned. 
Maybe they don't know the day or the hour, but they can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the end of evil is planned. And I want to read it to you in Revelation 20, verse 10. And I hope it gets your heart pumping just a little bit this morning because it says, and the devil. Now think of all the things that the devil himself have, have ruined in your life, certain moments, certain times, certain things, certain frustrations, things that you can be very frustrated about because the enemy has, has wreaked havoc on our world for all kinds of different reasons. So this is what's going to happen. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. <laughs> At the end of the day, all of Satan's plans will be shattered, broken, and destructed. All the pain and fear and terror that he has caused, he will know the consequence of. In this life, on this earth, you're going to feel frustrated by the sin that makes things hard and the sin that makes things difficult. Maybe you're the victim of a crime. Maybe you're someone who has been abused or hurt. Maybe you're someone who has lost someone you love because of cancer or an illness. Or, or, or things have happened because we live in this broken, sin-filled, messed-up world that there are things that shouldn't be. There are kids that are hungry and that shouldn't happen. There are people that aren't safe in places where they should be. And that's not fair. All of these things that we struggle with, that we wrestle with, the world was never intended to have fear and pain. The world that God created was perfect, but the enemy ran rampant and he perverted all that was supposed to be good. And in this life, you're going to feel the unfairness of sin from the moment you're born to the moment you die. But I want you to see here in the scripture this morning that the enemy doesn't get let off the hook. That all the pain, all the heartache, all the sleepless nights are avenged. That God has the final say. God has the final word. You may not see it on this side of the second coming. And for that, I'm sorry. But you can know if you are a believer in Jesus that he does what he said he's going to do. And at the end of the day, the enemy will pay for every terrible thing that he has released into your life. God will punish Satan for the way he has hurt his children. God is the great protector. He is the great lover. He is not one who wants to see bad things happen to us. He is not one who is, who, who is um, he, he cries with us when we are upset, when we are frustrated with things that are happening. But he, I, I just feel like he would say to us, listen, it's coming. I promise. There's going to be a day where, where the enemy is going to get what he deserves. Where, where, where the deception that he has led people in, he's going to get where he deserves. And so because of that, I really believe that we need to let go of the offenses that we have with people here on earth or the things that happen to us. Because you will get justice. You will. It may not be in the way that you have decided you want. It may not be in, in the way that you would imagine. But you may not live to see the resolution. But at the end of the day, the scripture says, it promises that Jesus wins. Jesus wins. Jesus wins the day. And when we don't read that and focus on that and remember that, I believe we lose sight. and We begin to decide that we are the ones who have to make it right. That we're the ones that have to make sure we get justice or we get avenged. 
The scripture says that Satan even knows this. But he is so prideful, he's so arrogant, that he chooses to try to cause mass destruction until that moment. Revelation 12, 12 says, the devil is filled with fury because he knows his time is short. The devil is filled with fury because he knows his time is short. A few weeks ago, um, we have a, a deck out the backside of our house, and, and I discovered a bee's nest, a hornet's nest, a huge one. And so I said to Joel, you need to kill that bee's nest because the girls are going to go out there and play, and I don't want them to get stung. And, and he said, okay, well, he didn't have any bee spray. So in the great man fixer that he is, he decides to light it on fire, okay? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know where he learned this. So he's out there, and I'm sitting at, in, the, in, the, in the kitchen with the door shut watching him, like, good luck with that. And he is lighting <laughs> the, the, the bee's nest on fire, and then he's running in the house and shutting the door because they're chasing him, which I don't know how they know that. Well, one lucky bee gets in the house, and I'm mad because it wasn't my idea to light the bee's nest on fire. What are you thinking? And this bee is going around, and it is flying around mad as a hornet because it knows. That was a good one. I didn't even realize it's that. Mad as a hornet. It is a hornet. That thing knows its time is short. It was trying to find somebody to sting. Luckily, we got it with a shoe. But it literally reminded me of this verse. That the devil knows his time is short. He has read Revelation 20. And he is mad. And that is why he is trying to cause mass destruction every moment that he can. As the tribulation comes to earth, even the enemy will know his time is coming to an end. And so we see, remember we talked last week about how, how um, the, the evil increases, right? That te more terrible things happen, that more people turn from him, that more people are deceived. Why is that happening? Because even the enemy knows, oh boy, I got seven years. I got seven years before Jesus comes back and then I'm banished for a thousand I better do as much destruction as I possibly can because when Jesus returns, the enemy will be locked up, chained up, stopped from his despicable ways, and after a thousand years, the enemy will be defeated and vanquished forever and ever. So after that, we see in Revelation 20, verse 11, the judgment of a holy God. So I want to read this to you. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, and the earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death, and anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. This describes the moment where your decision to make Jesus Lord of your life counts for all the chips. Everything you have done, everything, 
will be exposed and weighed and judged. And I believe you will see the depth of why you don't deserve heaven. That that you will see that. But if you trusted Jesus with your heart when you were alive on earth, your name will be found in the book of life, and you will live in heaven forever and ever and ever with Jesus. And you will not have to pay for your shortcomings and your sin. Someone else will pay for it. Jesus will have paid what you deserved. But this scripture says if you did not trust Jesus, if you did not believe in him, your name will not be in the book, and you will be thrown into the lake of fire along with the enemy. This is not because Jesus wants you to go there. This is because nothing unholy, nothing sin-stained can enter his presence. I believe this will not be a happy day for Jesus. I believe he wants all men to be saved. But Jesus gives us this free will to make that choice for ourselves. He does so much just so that you will hear him, just so that you will make that decision for him, with him. He makes it so simple. He makes it as easy as possible. He says, just trust me. Just trust me and my grace will cover you. But there are those that will not trust him. And the scripture talks about what happens to those people. If you haven't made that choice yet and you're here today, I pray right now that the presence of God, that the Holy Spirit just urges you right now to do so. I want to tell you, we have no reason to believe this part of Scripture is anything but fact. He says this is what's going to happen. There will be no surprise endings. I believe that God says I'm going to make it as fair as possible. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. I'm going to tell you what is going to happen at the end of the day. So are you ready? Are you ready for it? Because I'm giving you all the possible clues. I'm giving you all the possible urgings. I want so badly for all men to be saved. I'm going to tell you even the end that there will be a judgment day. But you have to choose. Are you going to be ready for that day? There is a man in the New Testament who gives us a great example to follow, and that man's name is Simeon. And I'm going to end with this. Simeon isn't remembered for leading or preaching or miracles. Actually, he, he didn't do anything very spectacular, but he is remembered for looking. The way Simeon looked for the first coming of Christ is the way that we should look for the second coming. Eight days after the birth of Jesus, Joseph and Mary brought their son to the temple. And Simeon, who was prompted by the Holy Spirit, meets him there. And in fact, this isn't the first time Simeon was prompted by the Holy Spirit. We see in Luke 2, 26, that it had been revealed to him, meaning Simeon, by the Holy Spirit, that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. That's quite a promise. He says, Simeon, you are going to see the Lord's Messiah. I'm not going to take you from this earth until you see the Lord's Messiah. And so it says that Simeon looked. It's this Greek word for look. And it actually is this term, I think we're going to put on the screen here, prostikamea, something like that. It means to wait forward. It means to wait forward, to be patiently vigilant, to be calmly expected, to be eyes open, to be ready, and to be waiting. Both words are really critical. Waiting is we are hoping for something that we don't have yet. We're waiting for it patiently. We don't have it yet. It's not here yet. But Simeon is this really great model because he's not consumed with the not yet. 
that he ignores the right now. He's not so consumed with the not yet that he ignores the right now. And in 1 Peter 3, 10 through 11, it says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done it will be laid bare. But since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? And it answers its own question. You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. What kind of people ought we be? Well, holy and godly people who are waiting forward. Unfortunately, most Christians today, we don't wait forward. We, we forget to look we're complacent, we're, we're content, we, we seldom run to the temple on a prompting like Simeon did. We, we seldom let the Holy Spirit interrupt our plans just to go worship Jesus. We don't think about the second coming, we don't live in the urgency of judgment day. In fact, me talking about it today might have been the first time you've thought about it all year. But my prayer is that our church could be a church who is strong in the waiting and strong in the watching that we would not lose vigilance, that we would work on being holy and godly, and that we would wait forward. Now, I love this. We don't always get to see the end of the story in Scripture. Oftentimes, the conclusions aren't afforded to us. But in this particular Scripture, we see the ending in Luke 2, 28-29. Simeon takes the baby Jesus in his arms, and he says this, Lord, you can let me die now. He waited, he watched, he waited forward. He said, I have seen the promise you have made to me and that is all I need. I can, I can die now because the, the prophetic moment that you have shown me has happened. And I believe that one look into the face of Jesus and Simeon knew it was time to go home. And, and I believe that for us, that on the day that Christ comes, one look into the face of our Savior and we're gonna know the same. It's going to be time to go home. And we're going to wait and watch forwardly every minute in hopes that Jesus would come and he would come quickly, but that he would come and, and many of us would know and understand and have faith in Jesus Christ because there will be judgment. There has to be. God is the perfect judge. He's no kind of God at all if he doesn't judge sin. But he shows us the ending because he wants all to know him. Would you stand I want to just finish this series out, finish this Sunday out strong this morning and wait forward like Simeon did and sing this song out that talks a lot about the second coming as we wait forward. Let me pray. You guys can um, get started. Father God, I thank you that you are faithful, that like that father that found his child in the middle of rubble, that he promised he would come back. God, we can trust you that you're coming, that everything you say in the scripture is true. Lord, I thank you that when you come, you will be so beautiful that our minds will not be able to comprehend that you are indescribable in every way, Father God. I thank you, Lord, that we can trust you, that we can wait forwardly, that we can live holy and godly lives, Lord Jesus, and sharing our faith with other people in this urgency that that day is coming. And God, we are part of the mission that you have designed for everyone to know you. God, would you use us? Would you help us be a church that waits expectantly, that watches like Simeon did? In Jesus' name we pray, change us today.
see your power. I see your power in the moonlit night where planets are in motion and galaxies are bright. We are amazed in the light of the stars. It's all proclaiming who you are. Your beauty. celebrate the great rescue that you perform. We love you and worship you. We thank you for these truths from your word. We thank you for how you love us and have chosen us. May we walk in that calling every day. Amen. Amen. If you need prayer or want to talk, we will be up here, but you have a blessed week and go with this encouragement today, all right? 